Do you think they knew when they were filming, like, okay, he's not going to be our charisma. She's going to be our charisma because they put him in khakis. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you about what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. All right, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So today we have an episode that we are tying with the release of John Wick Chapter 2, and that movie is Speed. So we're taking a look at speed and entitlement. And to do that, I have a return guest. I have David Shreve, who's the founder and editor-in-chief of AudiencesEverywhere.net. So thanks for thanks for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Thanks for thinking of me when um, entitlement became the topic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell people about Audiences Everywhere and where they can contact you guys online? Yeah, um, Audiences Everywhere is a website that I help contribute to and edit with and run. I'm the editor-in-chief, but that's just only entitled. Everybody else does the work. Uh, AudiencesEverywhere.net is the address. It's a conversation film site where I try... We try to maintain a nice spectrum of representation through uh, writing voices that um, discuss new and old movies, milestone movies. Um, it's a really colorful conversation. I'm really proud of the crew we have. I think it's the best we've ever had. Um, so again, you can find us at audienceseverywhere.net. Uh, we're on Twitter at We Talk Movies, one word. And we're on Facebook, too. I don't mess with that much, so just do a search because I don't know how to find that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. And I would definitely recommend people go to uh, go to audiences everywhere. I think it's a great site. It's nice. I'm trying to myself kind of turn over a new leaf and be a little more positive and not jump into conversations just to say, ah, everything you love is stupid. Uh, So and I think uh, audiences everywhere is a really good site for that. It is kind of overwhelmingly positive. It's not in the business of, you know, hating on movies, which which I really like. We were for a year. Um, we had a garbage pile. We, we delighted in it. And then we realized that there's so much cynicism right. and bitterness and, and that we uh, actually we almost outlawed. Um, we, we rate new movies on a grading system, A through F. But um, we made it very difficult to do an F without anyone else's approval. Uh, we removed our garbage pile. Um, we try to keep it positive to meet every movie on its own terms and, and try to discuss it with an even keel and not get mad about things. So I'm glad that you've noticed. I actually take pride in that. So it means a lot to me that you even pointed it out. Nice. All right. So before I talk about the psychology part of things, why don't you give us a a couple movie recommendations connected to speed and entitlement? So I want to go two different ways here. I have one movie to discuss in terms of speed and one movie to discuss in terms of entitlement. So I'll start with the fun movie. Um, the last time I was on your show, we actually discussed The Equalizer. So your regular listeners will know that I'm a Denzel fanatic. <laughs> um, so in terms of speed, the first movie that came to mind while I was watching this movie in a comparative sense was the movie Unstoppable. Um, in both speed and Unstoppable, there is a vehicle of hefty weight that's running away at a fast speed. And that becomes the uh, the driving part, the driving element in the plot and that establishes the stakes and establishes um, the general storyline. Uh, make it stop going so fast. 
Um, so my first <laughs> speed related movie recommendation is uh, it's actually also Tony Scott's last film. And he's one of my favorite directors of all time and one of his better received films in his later career. So my, my uh, first movie suggestion is Unstoppable from Tony Scott. Nice. And my second um, movie is about entitlement, which I don't even know that a lot of people got this that element from this film. I know it was critically um, critically celebrated just a few years ago. Um, but I think there's a sh- uh, the animated film from Charlie Kaufman and Amalisa. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, I think that film is one that reeks of white male entitlement. Um, I think that's the um, intentionally or not. I think that's the most prominent element on the screen in that particular movie. Uh, so much so that it made me uncomfortable by the end of the movie. But I can't say whether it was by design or not, but it is to the movie strength. Well, I don't think you could pick two more different movies. I think that's pretty cool that we can we can connect yeah. Unstoppable and Anomalisa on the same podcast. That's fantastic. Unstoppable is one of those movies I've always meant to go see and just never got around to it. And it just kind of went by the wayside. So maybe that'll prime me to actually finally watch that movie. And Anomalisa, actually, I really like that movie a lot. I think it has a lot to say. And I think I don't think that um, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people would pick up on the entitlement piece. But especially if you look, I mean, it's there throughout the entire runtime, but especially how things switch in kind of the last third of the movie. I mean, it really it's really right there on the surface. Nice. He's a guy who believes he's owed something more than he has. And so it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of the same thing that we'll see in smaller doses in speed. And yeah. do check out Unstoppable. I can't press that enough. That is a really, really good movie and two great performances. It's the first time I saw Chris Pine and said, shit, he's a good actor. All right. Sounds good. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. I'll talk about entitlement and then we'll bring David back to talk about speed. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right everybody it's time for the psychological section so today we are talking about as mentioned before entitlement so if you look at entitlement in a non-psychological way it's just a provision made in accordance with a legal framework of any society typically these entitlements are based on concepts of rights which are themselves based in concepts of social equality or or enfranchisement Entitlement can also informally have to do with expected social conventions or social norms. So you get what you're entitled to in a perfect world. But it's also a part of narcissism. Now, according to the DSM-5, individuals with narcissistic personality disorder are likely to have this sense of entitlement to special treatment and to obedience from others, typically without commensurate qualities or accomplishments. So this is not the same thing as entitlement in a fair society. People who have more of a sense of entitlement will want this reassurance and want these extra special treatments, even if they haven't done anything to deserve them, which we'll talk about a lot more when we get to the theme when we talk to David Shreve about especially our villain of speed. 
So in clinical psychology and psychiatry, an unrealistic, exaggerated, or rigidly held sense of entitlement is a symptom of narcissistic personality disorder, which is seen in those who, according to Freud, because of early frustrations, they arrogate to themselves the right to demand lifelong reimbursement from fate. So, so no matter what they do, they deserve they they think they deserve this special treatment. Most experts in narcissistic personality disorder think that this sense of entitlement is actually to protect this very vulnerable sense of self. So you build up these layers of grandiosity and entitlement to protect yourself because if people were to see what you were really like, you are really vulnerable and maybe don't deserve this special treatment. So it's kind of pushing back against that. All right. So our first article actually comes from Science Daily, uh, which is uh, a site where you can get some some pretty decent research, even if you're not tied into the academic system. Um, and this is about entitlement leading to disappointment. So entitlement, they define as a personality trait driven by exaggerated feelings of deservingness and superiority. And it may lead to chronic disappointment, unmet expectations, and a habitual self-reinforcing cycle of behavior with dire psychological and social costs. So in this new theoretical model, these researchers have kind of mapped out how these personality traits can lead to this feedback loop of distress. And they say that at extreme levels, entitlement is a toxic narcissistic trait, repeatedly exposing people to the risk of feeling frustrated, unhappy, and disappointed with life. And I think we can tie that to that character uh, in the film, which we'll talk about later. Now, there are lots of times uh, in life that our lives, our health, our aging, and even the world around us don't treat us as well as we'd like. I think that's a common experience for everyone. But confronting these limitations, it is, it's especially threatening to a person who is entitled because it threatens their entire worldview. If you think you're superior and people aren't treating you well, that's like the opposite of what should be happening, right? So in reaction to these injustices that they see, people who are entitled tend to direct their anger outward, blaming other people. And this, this kind of reassures themselves of their own kind of their own entitlement, their own specialness. And that will begin that cycle again. And they did a study, um, which was based on a review of almost 200 academic papers, and the cycle is really a three-stage process. One, entitlement creates a constant vulnerability to unmet expectations, because if you are entitled and think you deserve everything, no one and no thing can ever meet those expectations. Second, unmet expectations will lead to dissatisfaction and other volatile emotions. And then emotional distress demands a remedy, leading to the reinforcement of your own superiority. So according to one of the co-authors, um, Julie Exline, she says, reassurance stemming from entitlement can provide temporary relief from the very distress caused by entitlement. Unfortunately, these benefits are really short-lived. So long-term consequences associated with this entitled behavior will include poor relationships, interpersonal conflicts, and depression. So Excellent again comments, the entire mindset pits someone against other people. When people think that they should have everything they want, often by giving nothing, it comes at the cost of relationships with others and ultimately their own happiness. And actually, there's a lot of studies out there showing that entitlement is on the rise. Um, and this is this is under great debate. I think there's there's a lot of people who will lump like millennials together and they tend to look at millennials as people who see themselves more entitled than previous generations. And these entitled traits have a really strong breeding ground in the strong current of individualism valued by American society and culture. 
Now, unfortunately, there's no clear path for a person to break out of this cycle of entitled behavior, but previous research shows that traits of humility and gratitude actually protect against the distress associated with entitlement. But this is going to be really hard to teach to people who are entitled. Like, how can, how can I have humility when I'm so much better than everyone else? But by creating a sense of safety and security, psychologists have helped in the past entitled people feel more connected to others by finding common ground in their limitations and their suffering that's present in kind of all of humanity. So there is a little bit of hope for people who are entitled, but I think once you get to that level of narcissistic personality disorder, it gets a lot more difficult. Okay, so for our last article, we're looking again at narcissistic entitlement, but this time we're going to look at the effects of that and and another personality trait called exploitativeness on human physical aggression. This is from Reedy, Zeichner, Foster, and Martinez in 2008. So they state that narcissism has really been described as a mixed blessing because it has adaptive and maladaptive features. So on one hand, narcissists can be really outgoing and confident and perform, perform well under, under pressure. But on the other hand, they're impulsive. They fail to learn from their mistakes. And the most concerning part are prone to many forms of aggression and including verbal and physical violence. So in this, they took 91 undergraduate men. And the reason it's men is one, because a lot of studies focus on men, but two, you're going to find more narcissism and more exploitiveness in men in general. So to kind of provide some validity to the study, participants were told that they would be competing against a male peer in a series of reaction time trials. So then they had to fill out a demographic form, a narcissistic personality inventory, a response choice aggression paradigm, which measures direct physical aggression under laboratory conditions where participants are allowed to retaliate or to refrain from responding to provocation by a confederate or someone who's working for the study. So the actual task they had to do is presented as a reaction time competition. So they compete against an opponent, they think, but there's really no one they're competing against who's supposedly seated in an adjacent room. So then they're told they have the choice to deliver shocks to the opponent as punishment following trials that are either won or lost. And they can do so as often as they desire throughout the task or they can refrain from responding. They're informed that the 10 shock intensities available represent levels between 55 and 100% of the other person's pain tolerance determined prior to the task. And then the aggressive behavior is measured via six levels. One, shock intensity, so the average intensity of shocks for the trials in which they administer the shock. Shock duration, obviously the duration of the shocks. Proportion of highest shocks, that's the number of times they use the highest shock available for trials in which a shock is administered. Flashpoint intensity, which defines the intensity of the first shock administered. Flashpoint duration, again, the duration of the first shock administered. And shock frequency, this is just the number of times they do the actual shocking. So what this study was looking for is they wanted to identify factors of narcissism positively associated with direct aggression. They hypothesized that the relationship between narcissism and aggression would be strongest for those who had the subfactors of entitlement and exploitiveness. And results actually supported the hypothesis for all aggression indices, but the strongest predictors were entitlement and exploitativeness. The findings indicate that the entitled and exploitative narcissist are at increased risk to use aggression more frequently across different interpersonal contexts in various forms, so direct, indirect, physical, and verbal. And they would do so at greater levels within each of those contexts. So basically what it all boils down to is that you have – if you have narcissistic levels of entitlement and exploitativeness, that these are the subtraits that best predicted every measure of aggression. 
So it actually supports the existing research that's out there that identifies these traits as particularly maladaptive traits of narcissism. And there's a link between narcissism and perpetration of violence and victimization. Um, so we can really look at one of our main characters in this movie as someone who is very willing to exploit people. Like if you look at the scenes on the bus, the scenes in the elevator, and the scenes in the subway, there's not a lot of care given to the the victims that that the people that may become victims in these scenarios. And he clearly has this level of narcissistic entitlement that is going to lead to this aggression and violence. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. When we come back, David Shreve of Audiences Everywhere will come back to talk about speed. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back from our break. It's time to talk about speed. So, of course, the whole reason I thought of speed, even though my regular co-host Mike tried to convince me to do Speed 2 Cruise Control, which I just refuse. I, I don't think I'll ever watch that movie, let alone cover it on the podcast, is because John Wick 2 is coming out and, you know, uh, what was it, two, maybe two years ago now when John Wick first came out, it was kind of this – Interesting, like, coming out party for Keanu Reeves as an action star. And I started thinking, like, oh, Keanu Reeves as an action star. This actually started decades ago. Like, he has been yeah. in this in this role before. And I think, you know, we always kind of talk about our history with the movies uh, on this show. And I was thinking back, and I think I was at this point with Keanu Reeves where I was, you know, kind of in that crew where he was like, oh, Keanu Reeves sucks. He's not a good actor. Should I even bother seeing this, like – why, why, why should I go to the theater to see this? And I end up, ended up for some reason, it's, it feels like that summer movie that everybody's going to go see. So you go see it. And I remember it actually being pretty impressed by it. Like I thought, right. I didn't, I thought it was much better than, than expectations. So I thought this is going to be interesting to look at this decades later. Cause I think I watched it once in the theater and once when it came out on VHS, cause that's how old I am. Um, but, since then, it's kind of fallen by the wayside, especially with – but then, you know, later in his career, you see him doing things like Matrix, which is very much – even though it has high ideas, I think, it's still at its core an action film. So he's – Yeah, the best parts of it are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is your history with Speed? So Speed came out in 94, which means I was 11 years old. You're at a youngster. Point, You're a baby. Yeah. So at that point in my at that point in my life, I um one I'd never been to the movies, um so I didn't see this in a theater. I didn't go to the theater till I was thirteen to the movie theater. Um, I know that's an awfully slow start for a guy who that is late late stuff. bloomer, man. Yeah. So uh, so when I watched Speed, it was also on VHS, and I remember liking it. I remember enjoying. it. I remember having a crush on Sandy Bullock. Um, 
at 11. I didn't know what to do with that crush, but it was there. Um, and I also remember looking back. Now, this is retrospective, not so much remembering. I also don't think the imperativeness of the dire situation uh, landed with me because not only had I not been in the movie, so I didn't understand maybe the cinematic elements of it, um, but I also, at the time that I was 11, was just starting to learn to drive on a dirt road that I grew up on in a hauler. Mm. So I had no understanding of any – I'd never been to a major city. Um, mm. Like the most that I knew about like congested traffic was when there was a funeral procession near my house. <laughs> like <laughs> that was rush hour for me. Uh. So <laughs> – so I knew nothing like nothing about I'm sure that nothing at the time resonated with me. What even 50 miles an hour in a bus looked like, what any like construct, like major construction on a um, on a beltway would look like. Um, so I think all of that was lost on me, but I think I still enjoyed it. I, re- I, I haven't rewatched the movie uh, until till until uh, this episode. So, yeah, I remember thinking like even at, I was 15 when this came out. I remember even thinking at that age, like this is a tough sell. For a movie, because yeah. you know the basic plot of the movie is there's a bomb on a bus when it when it goes up when it goes to fifty the bomb is armed and you can't go below fifty or it'll blow up and that sounds not great like that does not sound like something you're like oh I can't wait to see that it is a tough sell um, right. so it's interesting to see if it'll be interesting to see like on rewatch like does does this work and how does this change um, so just briefly like what was your rewatch like what was the experience of rewatching an action movie you know twenty years later. So so now that I've lived in major cities and traveled and I lived in D.C. and then traveled to New York City, driven in different areas, um, kind of more exhilarating this time around because mm. I realized the logistics of driving a bus at uh, 50 miles an hour continually right. is absolutely impossible in a metropolitan area. Now, with that said, I want to digress here. Um, you know I don't like the term overrated. <laughs> one of your oh, favorites i know yeah. so <laughs> at least in terms of when it comes to movies like if you want to use it towards a general statement towards something that's not quantified all over the place like if you want to say pineapples are an underrated snack fine but <laughs> unless you live but, in a world where there's just snack ratings everywhere you look is right. there like a snack twitter like there's a film twitter right. i don't know <laughs> you know that's fine if you want to say that pineapples sure. are not underrated but movies are just rated they're just rated. We have the ratings. They're everywhere. We don't get to say underrated or overrated. They're just rated, and we either agree or disagree with that. Sure. Um, with that said, <laughs> I don't know why this one stands out. It's a perfectly serviceable action movie and even enjoyable sometimes. Right. I, rewatching at this time, you think 90s action movies, there are certain milestone action movies, and Speed is almost certainly one of them. And I don't know how it worked its way onto that Mount Rushmore. Again, perfectly serviceable, and I enjoy serviceable, and I enjoyed many parts of it. But, but looking at it, I'm like, what's the element here that everybody fell in love with? Right. All I can come up with is that Sandra Bullock was absolutely charming in a way that that we've never seen in this kind of action film before from the female companion. Mm. She she was the charming one in this movie. She was, I think Keanu Reeves' one-liners just didn't land because I don't think that's his thing. No, I just don't think he has the the charisma on his own to be yeah. that stereotypical action star, which I think is why John Wick works so well, because right. he doesn't have to do that. He gets to be kind of like almost morose in the in the way he portrays these characters, whereas this, he's trying to do this thing where he's giving these one-liners and they just like, 
like land with a thud and you're just kind of like you almost feel bad for him as you're watching the movie for okay so spoiler alert because at the end of the movie when when he defeats um when he defeats the main bad guy in the movie his delivery of that line and that line in particular is just so weak it's like he just <laughs> killed the boss and yep and it is what is it yeah but i'm taller that's yep. his yep i'm that's taller line. that's fine oh it's rough so, and, but in in fairness i'm not sure anyone could i mean you could deliver that line better but I'm not sure yeah. it can be delivered well. It's a bad ending line. Yeah. Like, and it's not even like an Arnold Schwarzenegger bad line. Like, right. It's not, yeah, I, but- you know, I, you said you'd kill me last. I lied. Like, there's some cleverness to, to those scripts. And I, and I think there's, there's some of that lacking, but also it doesn't help that Keanu was not at the point in his career where he could do this. Like, he, at this point, what was he known for? Bill and Ted? Like, it's not as if he had this long career where he had all this charisma and all this kind of cachet built up with audiences. It was, you know, it was a tough sell like most of this movie was. Do you think they knew when they were filming, like, okay, he's not going to be our charisma. She's going to be our charisma because they put him in khakis. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate action star in khakis. Yeah, I think. You know, you brought up this I, this idea of like why why did this get to that kind of Mount Rushmore level of '90s yeah. action? And to me, it's 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 two things. One, it's it's Sandra Bullock. Even though I think you and I will disagree on Sandra Bullock here in this movie because I'm not a huge fan of her performance here, okay. but I think it's her, and I think it's the other supporting characters. I think um, Jeff Daniels uh, and Dennis Hopper carry this movie. Yeah. And, Hop- and, you know, Hopper is a great villain, is a very quotable villain in this. And Jeff Daniels, I think, is really good here as I think he gives you the only emotional heft you have in the entire film. And I think without that, you start to – he's the reason you care about Keanu Reeves' main character. Without him and without Sandra Bullock, I don't think you care if your main character lives or dies because he has almost no charisma. So that's that's a problem. So I think everyone else kind of does the heavy lifting here. Okay, that makes sense. But but even in terms of like action spectacle, the jump, the uh, obviously the scene that everybody is going to remember is the jumping bus. Sure. Um, but so this was 94, right? Mm-hmm. And Terminator 2 was when? I think Terminator 2 might have been first. Yeah. 91. So, yeah. so we remember, and again, I know a lot of its stakes too, like the simplicity of the stakes made it a very accessible action flick. Right. But like, so action spectacle the jumping bus, cool. That's that was a cool scene. But Terminator Two had a jumping bus seemingly in every scene. Right. It's interesting. I think when we look back at movies of different eras, we start going, "Oh, well, it was the '90s. Everything yeah. was like that." But we stop. But then when you stop and think about, okay, where were the the kind of giants of the action industry? When did that happen? And Terminator Two is still like eminently rewatchable. Like it yes. does not feel like a dated movie. So you can't just say, oh, well, it was the 90s. So that's what things look like. Like if you're willing to push the envelope, that's not what things look like. And I think I think one of the things that helps this movie is the the kind of relatively different and low stakes that you brought up. The fact that it's, you know, it's on a bus, right? So the whole movie essentially, I would say like what, like 70% of this movie takes place on this bus, which is never going to go more than 70 miles an hour because it can't possibly push that weight. So it's I think it's easy for us as an audience to imagine ourselves in that position, whereas if you're in a speeding car that's going 130 miles an hour, you better film that perfectly or we as an audience are just going to check out. Right. And to the film's credit, the the element, the bus, the bus section of the movie, that 70 percent in the middle is 
is where it's good. There's, yeah. I, to me, there's three action sets. There's the elevator in the beginning, the uh, the bus ride in the middle, and then the um, the subway train right. at the end. Uh, the two on the front and the back, nothing special about those. But there are times when the bus ride just works because that's what it is. Because yeah. it is a bus that can't slow down. Yeah, absolutely agree. All right, so let's jump into the direction. So, so this is directed by uh, Jan de Bont, um, who is is known, of course, like he did he did cinematography and things like this for uh, for Die Hard. So he's got some, you know, it's some action chops, but he hasn't actually directed that many films. We've got Speed, we've got Twister, we've got Speed Two, The Haunting, and Lara Croft: The Cradle of Life. That's it, which actually really um, surprised me because it's a name that I automatically recognize. So I just assumed he would have this huge, long uh, filmography, and that's really not there. Um, I don't know if like Speed 2 tanking just kind of ended things for him, but – Boy, did it you know, tank. Yeah. Boy, it's, when I was looking up, when I was looking up uh, just random things to, to like simulate what I might think about this movie, a uh, piece of trivia – that I come, came across from the, an article in the film's 20th anniversary that there's a 90% difference between Speed 1 and Speed 2 on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh, wow. Yeah, that's it's over 90%. That is drastic. And yeah. I remember I, it's it, Speed 2 is one of those movies that just became such a joke that I honestly couldn't even tell you if I actually saw it or not. Like I feel like I've seen enough of it to talk trash about it, uh, yeah. but I can't guarantee that I've actually seen the entire movie. Look, um, if it's in 3% on Rotten Tomatoes, you don't have to watch it to talk trash about <laughs> right. it. Right. It's pretty universal there. Yeah. One thing, though, I liked about Yondabon's direction here, especially in that that first part of the film that you talked about, the kind of elevator sequence and everything leading up to it, he does a great job at letting Keanu Reeves stand out in a crowd. It's something about the way he frames his shots that even if he's off-center – uh, as far as the group of people, he's always in the center of the shot and he always stands out. And that's something that, especially with an actor like Keanu Reeves, who doesn't have that natural charisma, he's not someone you're looking towards at all times. It takes some really creative work to help the audience focus on him. And I thought he did a good job of that. Yeah, I agree. I think so, too. Um, that any, not any, but most distinction that you give towards Keanu Reeves being a um, distinctive hero here, you have to give to the director. Right. As much as, as much or more than the performance. Yeah, absolutely. There's all, there's one shot in this movie, and it's bothered me since I was since I was 15 that it seemed unnecessary. There is a random like upskirt shot as one person is escaping from oh, the yeah. elevator, and it always stands out to me. Every time I watch it, I'm always like, God, really? Did we? Like, yeah, that could happen as someone's being helped out, but it seemed like the camera lingered there on purpose. And it was just yeah, like, like he put that in the wrong cut. Like, right. That's, <laughs> that's right. the personal Yondabont cut that <laughs> should stay at your house. Not, not the theatrical cut. It's always, every time I've seen it, I'm just like, really? Is that what we're doing here? Is that the type of movie we're making? It was the nineties. Those were the days. I'm just, <laughs> don't, don't hold me to that. But yeah, I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, wow, okay. I guess it's 94, that's what we were doing then. But I mean, even as a 15-year-old, which is prime time for me to appreciate that, I was just kind of like, oh, hmm. Clinton's America, Dave. It's Clinton's America, okay? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, The other thing I like that Yondabont did is using the speedometer as as kind of a device to build tension. Oh, yeah, that's great. And he does it, and it 
it's repetitive, but not so much that it bothered me. You know, it's a very, it's a very thin line there. Like, I think if you constantly go back to the speedometer, like, oh, look, it's almost under 50 or look how fast they're going. Then, then you stop caring. Um, but the fact that when it, when the bomb is first armed, you see the red light go on, on the speedometer. So that's always your key into what's going on. And I liked his use of that. Yeah, I think he does that too. I think he knows when to use the speedometer, which is good. Like it's not overlaid on the screen, which would have just <laughs> been terrible. Right. Uh, but he also um, he uses the jump cuts from when the, the bus is moving to where the bus is going to let you know that 50 miles per hour is going to be really tough on this stretch. Right. Like, yeah. Framing the, the exterior to the interior and saying this is a huge bus, um, which is kind of why I I, um, I suggested Unstoppable because both of these films – use the size and bulk and and familiarity with their machines as a great storytelling device. I think it's better in Unstoppable because Unstoppable uses that giant machine as a great as a great plot device. Like it's just so huge and you know it's going to be catastrophic. But speed does it at its best moments. It's like this bus is big, this bus is heavy, it's bulky, it's not comfortable to steer. And here it is moving around a turn that's forthcoming and you know that 50 miles an hour is going to be a problem for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. You're right. It does a great job of that. Because if anyone's ever, even in a car, if you take a turn at 50 miles an hour, that's yeah. really fast. Imagine doing that with, with the tonnage that's behind a bus, let alone a bus full of people. Or know? an exit. Or, or the just when they take the exit off of the freeway. Right. When they're forced, where they're forced to exit the freeway. And anybody who's ever driven in any ma- major city, think of any exit in that city and imagine taking that exit at 50 miles per hour without stopping. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So that's so, and, and and they don't do it just by filming the bus taking the exit. It's the bus coming, film the exit, show show the familiar images, make it happen because you can't show it all at once without doing repeat takes from multiple angles. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Uh, so let's move to the acting really quick. So let's talk. We've talked a little about a little bit about Keanu and Sandra Bullock. I don't think Sandra Bullock's performance is bad here. I just feel like she and Keanu have almost negative chemistry. Like there's She's not. Living. Yeah, there's not a single part of me that that believes their like their romantic connection that you have to believe for the ending of this film to really get you. Um, right. You know, and it just and I, I'm not sure it's her fault. I've never been a big Sandra Bullock fan. I've liked her a little bit more later in her career when she's done things like Miss Congeniality. I think she's really meant for comedies like that. But her as a romantic lead just doesn't work for me, especially when she's up against the very wooden Keanu Reeves performance here. Yeah, and nothing nothing towards the performance here, but even the fact that it is a romantic lead in what amounts to two hours of time, like nobody falls in love that fast, no matter what the no matter what the strenuousness is. But I would have believed. I agree with you that that, that the two of them never establish a um a moving element of chemistry. Had had the bus driver not gotten shot, I think the Sandra probably would have fallen in love with him by the end of the movie because I think they had it for a second. Right. Like, bus driver i'm like ah see that's i want to be on the bus with that girl when she's flirting with the bus driver right yeah absolutely and you know we've we've talked i think enough about keanu like he's you know this is he was not ready for this Mm -hmm. kind of role yet like this i think i think he became kind of a household name because of comedies uh and they were trying to push him into this superhero role uh it's interesting when you look at um, kind of actors' careers like that, and that's something. This is something that could have happened to someone like Chris Pratt uh, when he was in Guardians of the Galaxy. Luckily, Chris Pratt clearly, apparently, has charisma to spare in that movie. But sometimes, yeah. when you take a, a comic actor who's, you know, 
in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar. Now, I think about Chris Pratt was kind of playing a doofus uh, in uh, in Parks and Rec, and he hadn't really done a big film role. He had done a lot of these smaller roles, and they moved right. him into this Star-Lord uh, position, and he, like, really jumped on board and really did a great job with this, whereas this, Keanu just wasn't ready. And I guess, you know, you just never know until you put someone under under the spotlight like that. Yeah, and I think there's a gap between there's readiness, but I think there's also a gap between where the role is written and what Keanu is capable of. I think when Keanu hit his action, his action crest, um, it was okay in Point Break, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so I think, but but where he really found his momentum, where it, where it really works for him, is that he's a little more Clint Eastwood, sci-fi Clint Eastwood, than sci-fi an action adventure bruce willis yeah this movie required a little bit of charisma but when he when he plays you said morose earlier well he plays stoic when he plays the quiet the quiet fury of constantine or neo or john wick the dude is amazing yeah absolutely and i'm I'm actually glad you brought up point break because i think i think that movie in a lot of ways it it's lifted up uh not only by the direction um, and the direction of the action, but I think Swayze has charisma to spare, so it kind right. of makes up for what Keanu's doing there. So I've, right. you know, I talked about we did a long time ago. We did an episode on John Wick, and I kind of changed my ideas about Keanu Reeves, thinking like, oh, Keanu Reeves is a shitty actor, and now it's like, no, he's just he's a limited actor. He's yeah. really good in this box. Uh, and speed is not in that box, but like you said, that that kind of stoic. I, th- I like that uh, comparison to Clint Eastwood. I think that's right. that's perfect, actually. And you know, he really does that well. But here, he's you know, he's out of his element. Yeah, he is. He's a little bit out of his element. And I just want to reemphasize that there's nothing wrong with having a box. Some of the greatest actors nope. of all time had a box, and he's really good at that. And that's why when John Wick came out, uh, I watched. Like you, I was taken back by a little bit it took a little while for it to warm to me mm-hmm. but i watch it now and i'm like man i have missed this since constant have you seen constantine yeah 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 i have missed this since and like he's really good at this and for all of its flaws keanu reeves is not a flaw in the matrix for nope. all the flaws in the matrix keanu reeves is not it no not at all yeah if anything he elevated that movie to be better that series the first movie is nearly perfect but he elevated that series to be better than the second third movies gave it any right to be yeah he god bless him he really tried so hard yeah. in the second and third movies yes he- uh, <laughs> i'm definitely one of those people who's like uh i'll watch the first matrix i'm good after that i'm just gonna pretend like none of that other stuff exists um uh, but let's move on to the kind of supporting characters that we talked about i think i think dennis hopper is nearly perfect here as a 90s action villain like i i don't think you get better than this i i think in a lot of like 80s to 90s action movies you depend on the hero to carry the movie but i think when right. you have a great villain i mean to me like obviously the best action villain of all time is alan rickman and Die Hard. i don't think that's even up for discussion uh okay. but dennis hopper is is just a couple steps below that i really love his performance here yeah and i think i think that's by design as you mentioned Mm -hmm. um the director was the cinematographer for die hard right and and this does feel a little bit like die hard light yes um you change five lines of dialogue put bruce willis in it it could be die hard three right right? it could not i'm not saying it could be die hard with a vengeance but no but this is where it was yeah yeah yeah, i got you (laughs) so but yeah it could have been and i think I think the villain's written in that direction, and I think um, and I think Jack Traven, Keanu's character, was written to be John McClane light. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but but Hopper himself, one of my favorite of his roles, and and you know Blue Velvet, he's amazing. But right. um, 
but he's really good. He's re- he's really good at making his one-liners work. Yeah, movie. he he does what Keanu can't in in yeah. the hero role. It's like you know you were and granted this line wasn't even originally said by him in the film, but the first thing I think of when I think of this movie is pop quiz hotshot. That's the first thing that jumps in my mind when I think. I don't think of the bus. I don't think of Sandra Bullock. Like the first thing I think of is Dennis Hopper. Uh, and if that's true for most people, then you have a memorable villain for sure. Uh, pop quiz hotshot. Terrace holding a police hostage got enough dynamite strapped to his chest to blow a building in half. Now, what do you do? Yeah, and I didn't remember that uh, that pop quiz hotshot wasn't his line. From me neither. That was a shock I when that, I rewatched it. I was like, oh, huh. I always thought I Dennis Hopper just office. came up with that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So sells it well. He's really good. And uh, beyond beyond him, though, one of my favorite elements of this is we talk about. You know, we'll get to the entitlement part of it later. But the fact that there's this madman uh, entitled terrorist wreaking havoc amongst um, essentially the working class populace of a city. And it's an understated element of this movie. But because it focuses on the uh, the infrastructure of the metro systems. That there is a nice balance created in this movie between uh the unseeming victims of terrorism and the madness of it. Because I think everybody else in this movie below Sandra Bullock from the bus driver to the people on the bus, to the tourist, to the guy who gets his car stolen at the beginning. uh, There's an accuracy to the working class, to the working class machinations of the city in this Mm -hmm. movie. And I really appreciate it. It doesn't mean much in the greater context of speed. Right. uh, But you don't, you don't get that sort of empathetic peripheral views of uh, the elbow grease of the city and other like-minded action films. Yeah, that's very true. Sometimes there is a – with action movies, there's this kind of distance from the quote-unquote normal people of the city. And I think I – th- but you almost have no choice but to do that since it's on a bus. Like that is where in general the working people are going to be. So I'm glad they they went that direction instead of just keeping this – this kind of sheen on the movie. Yeah. And they do that with the, um, with the third action set too. Uh, when the subway train comes careening through the construction area, right. They're, they're careful to frame the construction workers there, where it didn't have to do that. It could, we knew it was a construction area, right? But you see that it's just construction guys finishing their job walking. They're like, Oh fuck train. And they also, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not acting, but the bus has the acting of the working class. But the movie always keeps perspective around the fact that this sort of action, if it really were to happen, would be impactful toward the working class. And everybody who plays a working class character from the bus driver down um, is very believable in their role. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. All right. So let's uh, let's jump to the writing. So I think there's. This is very much a mixed bag for me as far as the script. I think the dialogue in general is very sharp. I think, of course, there are certain actors we've mentioned who can't quite pick up that sharp dialogue. But I think it's it's very smartly written. Um, But one thing I wanted to ask you about, they make a very specific choice here. So in the very beginning of the film, the whole elevator sequence, you are meant to think that the terrorist has died. Um, everyone right. is meant to think that uh, they make a choice to not make it a mystery that he survives because literally in the next scene, as everyone's getting their medals, they show you Dennis Hopper is alive. And I was wondering what you thought of that choice because they very easily could have stretched this out at least until the first bus explodes and like Keanu has to go into action. 
Yeah, well, they kind of stretched out to the very end, really. Um, mm-hmm. I think of a movie like Phone Booth where you don't know ever what the what the main villain looks like. Right. Um, they, it could have been a um, uh, I know I am your father reveal at the end. I'm the guy from the beginning. It could have been that, which would have been cheap. But how much would that have really offered to things, you know? Right. Like, it would have just been like, a, oh, snap. That's it. That's the most you can get out of that. And I think a lot of movies of that era that was enough to make a move like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, credit to the director here, knowing the strength wasn't the story <laughs> right. in this movie. Yeah. So I found myself wishing they had stretched it just the tiniest bit more. Yeah. Um, like just one or two scenes, because otherwise it's like, okay, what was the point of having that elevator sequence other than to, to show you kind of how cool things are and have this action set piece. It feels like, okay, we could have, we could have started this movie on the bus. If we wanted right. to, like literally this first 20 minutes doesn't matter other than taking um, Jeff Daniels kind of out of the picture because of his injuries. That's really all it accomplishes. Yeah. And a staff. Yeah, I guess that's true. Sorry if I ruined I, speed for you. No, that's OK. <laughs> uh, you didn't. It wasn't you. <laughs> it's, it's a perfectly serviceable movie. That's what I'm going to keep saying. Right. I feel like the only other really bad thing I have to say about it is that third, that third kind of sequence that takes place on the subway. Because I think up until then, we actually have a pretty strong female character. Uh, And you like her, but they instead at the very end, they turn her once again into a damsel in distress that our hero has to save for the clutches of the bad guy. Like it's two steps removed from literally tying her to the train tracks. Like this is this is where we're at. And that was a little disappointing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that was disappointing to me because up until then she handles herself. She manages to drive this bus. She. You know, the only time she kind of freaks out is when she thinks she kills an infant. Like, that's a pretty valid response to that. And then that the last 20, 30 minutes of this movie, I think, kind of takes a lot of that power away. It certainly does. It does. And I thought about this, too. And again, Clinton's America. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, a year before the Lewinsky scandal. So. Right. uh, So she's not just. Her hands literally are tied at the end. Mm-hmm. And she's been imperative in driving the action and combating the conflict. For literally, the- literally driving the action for the entire movie. And they don't give her anything in bringing down Howard. All she does, she apologizes for the last action set of the movie. She continually apologizes if she yeah. does something wrong. If she hadn't been, the- so the movie doesn't even recognize the fact that its most charismatic, its most charismatic element who has also kept everyone alive and given everyone a chance to even catch the bad guy. Cause if she's not on the bus, everything's screwed. If anybody yeah. else is on the bus, cause mm-hmm. things just go differently. She's tied to a, she's a bomb's placed on her. She's tied to a pole. It's as stereotypical as, as, a, as you said, tied to the train tracks, put some dynamite on her, throw on the train tracks. So they tie her to the train instead. Yep. And she doesn't do anything. And then she just gets in the hero's way. And then she asks him to hold, like, essentially asks him to hold her while they crash and hope for the best. Right. So, yeah, she's completely removed of any agency. I focus so much on the the fact that she's the primary uh, charismatic element, which is rare for a woman in that actions uh, Mm -hmm. in that action time period, except for maybe uh, Linda Hamilton, Terminator. Right. Um. And that I that I almost until you were speaking, I didn't realize how much agency was robbed for her from her in that yeah. third act. 
So that's a good that's a good observation. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think up till then they did a good job. There are other problems with the script. I mean, the the whole uh, setup of the bus driver being shot is very contrived, but it's one of those things also that you just have to go. Okay, it's an action movie, like you said, it's a serviceable, middle of the road kind of good, enjoyable action movie. You're gonna have moments where you're like, oh, of course, there's a guy with a gun on the bus, right. uh, and he happens to get shot. Oh, okay, sure, fine. Um, but I think I think some of those things you have to look over to get us it's it's a plot contrivance. It's to get us to the point where someone else has to drive and we have to move forward. And I think, you know, after you just kind of let that go, I think most of the rest of the script works pretty well. I don't think there's huge glaring plot holes here. There's just like little moments that don't quite work. I didn't catch it. How does Howard get on top of the, the train? At That's- the end. That's a really good question. I don't think they even show how it happens. Yeah, I went back just and tried to find up. it. It's just Howard's like, hold on a second. And then all of a sudden Howard's, <laughs> you know, tunnel crawling on top of the train with Keanu Reeves. Right, right. I'll be right there. Like, no no explanation yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. Totally yeah, that agree. part bothered me a little bit. But that's just editing. I'm sure there was a film, the sequence in which Howard made his way to the top. And like, this really disrupts the flow. But right. all of a sudden, like... At the time, what, 55, 60-year-old Dennis Hopper? <laughs> right. Just, you know, military crawling on top, like, no problem. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's talk about the production value. So one thing that stood out to me um, was the music, which I really enjoyed, actually. And music usually doesn't stand out to me. But it, it felt like, I mean, for lack of better terms, it just felt like an action movie score. Like, and it really worked from the very beginning because they introduce it, I think, in the opening credits. And I think it primes you for like, OK, this is going to be fun. Like, let's let's enjoy this. And I really like that. Yeah, I do, too. And I'll add, I don't know. I, I, I was checking some of the music afterwards and I wish I'd went back to see which songs were actually like utilized in the movie. But it's a soundtrack that contains Rod Stewart, Kiss, Pat Benatar, Blues Traveler, Cracker, Gin Blossoms and Billy Idol. That's that amazing. is an amazing soundtrack. <laughs> There's a lot going on there, man. There is. (laughs) Uh, That is badass. That is badass. (laughs) That's so many different flavors of badass. Right. That I almost that I that I'm going to probably listen to the soundtrack this week to see how it all integrates together. Just want to know like what insane person put all those together? Like that is that is like a mixtape with no flow to it whatsoever. It's just like we're just gonna throw it all in there and see what sticks. Yeah, absolutely. did when they made mixtapes for girls in 1994 no idea what the girl was like they're like i'm gonna get one of these right yeah one of these is gonna hit home and it's gonna be okay yeah absolutely so speaking of production by of course this is an action movie so should we talk we should probably talk about you know if those still work so do you feel like the action sequences in this movie work 20 years later um the bus stuff yes i do i do Mm -hmm. i think i think it's i think it's fine i think it's um actually to a degree it's almost enough to make one lament uh the scarcity of practical action sequences. Right. Looking it up, see how much of it was practical, how much was special effects. And I uh, discovered when the bus made the jump the first time, uh, when they were actually filming, they tried to actually jump the bus over a ramp, um, completely ruined the bus. They um, <laughs> first The first bus that they're using when they make that jump the first time, just the bus was crashed beyond repair and the director and the rest of the crew said, uh, we're not telling the studio. They lied. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they rebuilt a new bus from scratch, brought that in, and they made a new plan that was similar to the next with a few adjustments. And they um, they set the camera at the end of the jump. 
And everybody was like, well, with this weight and this much at this ramp at this angle, you're probably going to get the bus to get full 20 feet of aerial. So they measured it and the bus went something. So they measured it and they put the camera a few, a uh, few uh, dozen yards back from that so they can get the jump. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> And so, the, so I think the camera was somewhere between 80 and 90 feet. I don't remember this exactly. I should have written this down. But so the bus takes off. The, the new reconstructed bus that the studio has no idea exists uh, takes off. Supposed to go 20 feet, which is what all the experts said. Ends up going exactly the length of where they set the camera and destroying the camera. <laughs> Excellent. So it's both a parable about the hardships of practical effects and an exhibition of the rewards of practical effects. They actually caught the bus jump, the fall, the long jump that they did, was on a whim. Uh, a second cinematographer was filming, a second cameraman was filming uh, the jump from a different angle. So they got the angle they wanted, even as they destroyed the camera <laughs> with a second bus that was meant to replace the first bus that they destroyed. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's it's like guerrilla filmmaking like it's you know got to get this shot one way or another yeah i think you're right though i think that that sequence in particular works really well uh and also just all the stuff on the bus you know from the beginning when the you know he you know hops onto a car to try to get onto the bus and the the car goes into the the kind of water barriers i think all that stuff really works it's really fun um, but I think, you know, the elevator stuff is okay. It's not great, but I don't think it's terrible either. I think the stuff that really suffers is all the subway sequences uh, at the end of the film. Yeah, I agree with that. There's there, there's never an element where the subway – it's – subway sequences don't work. It doesn't work for framing. Right. It's, the subway – subway carts are not cinema, uh, cinemagraphic, mm-hmm. and subway tunnels – don't allow for the measurement of the object. Right. Yeah. I think the only time I could see, I've seen something like that work uh, is in uh, Skyfall uh, where you have Mm -hmm. the subway kind of go through and drop down and you get a sense of that scale, but you definitely do not get that here in any sense. It's just like, you just, I found myself waiting for the sequence to be over, which I'm sure is not what the creators of speed are hoping for at the end of this film. Like, can we just, yeah, let's go guys. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, you know, no, go ahead. Did you a few other things that I learned when I was researching some of the production stuff? Did you know the original script had the bus, the trigger to go no less than twenty miles an hour. <laughs> 20. Oh, yeah, twenty. Jesus. <laughs> and also the rewrite for the script, and now people retrospectively give him credit, um, probably fixed that problem at least. And you can see different the the influence here. Once I tell you this. Um, there are those, uh, he's uncredited, but there are those who think that Joss Whedon, who did, re- did admittedly work on the script, did 90% of the work on it. Mm, I can believe that. Yeah, that, that fits. That absolutely yeah. fits. I, it makes me wonder what Joss Whedon thought about the, the subway sequence where we've talked about where you kind of take away our lead female character's agency. Like yeah. everything leading up to that fits with the Joss Whedon kind of stereotype and then it just kind of goes off the rails, unfortunately. 
I also wonder if Joss Whedon, who wrote these pretty cool one-liners, watched Keanu Reeves before that. <laughs> like, oh, God. Fuck is this guy? <laughs> it's, so, it's so good, and it sounds so bad. Yeah. yeah, I can totally picture that. All right, so let's talk about our favorite scene. So my favorite scene in the movie is is that jump. But it's not just because of the special effects and the, the action sequence. I think the setup for that is really good. I think it's it comes at the right time where we feel like, oh, God, okay, we're finally in a good place. We're going to be okay. And then the the kind of reveal that like actually this road isn't finished and i like that it it takes them you know a good two to three minutes to get to that jump and they don't just rush into it they have everybody kind of panic a little bit like whether you're talking about right. the, the the cops who are trying to help out whether you're talking about keanu who's you know acting as if he's holding it together and you know when he finally gives this news to everyone on the bus i think all that lead up really works yeah yeah i love the part where, where he brings the news to the people on the bus i think that's great I think for me, my favorite scene is them getting off of the freeway. And I think that's fully personal because I've experienced the stress of just flat, just doing that. Like living in DC, my commute to the, to work every day for three years was uh four the beltway, which is terrible. And then the uh, two seventy spur in Rockville, Maryland. And the idea of doing anything worthy of an action movie in that drive, <laughs> getting off of the, getting off of the beltway <laughs> is so terrifying to me. Like I still have anxiety because of the driving that I had to do on a day-to-day basis. So seeing them come down off of the exit and all of that stuff was just so hyper, so much hypertension. Mm-hmm. That eleven-year-old me learning to drive on dirt roads in the backwoods would have never understood. Um, and I think it's like we've talked about it a couple of times. We've alluded to the way that the action is presented. It's not just a bus billowing through where it doesn't need to be going. It's leading in by saying, hey, this is where it's going. Here's where it's coming from. Here's the size of it. Here are the people inside. Right. And and I think I think that works. And w- when the movie is just that, it's just it's at a great pitch. It's at yeah. a great pitch. I totally agree. The last thing I want to bring up, it actually I was I was struck by this as I was watching it because it reminded me, you know, we're inundated with comic book movies at this point, but it reminded me of a scene from a Spider-Man movie. So stay with me. So there's a scene where he's underneath the bus trying to defuse this bomb. Um, and he almost dies, you know, he's almost thrown under the wheels and they, all the people end up kind of ducking down there and pulling him up and kind of almost carrying him to safety. And it struck me because in the beginning of the film, pretty much everyone in that bus is like, fuck you, Keanu Reeves. Like you right. just ruined my day. Thanks a bunch. And I like that the movie builds to a point where all these people, even the, like the, the kind of jerk who's sightseeing, who everybody hates, they all care about Jack. At this point in the movie. And that stuff, like, I think to me, emotionally, that is the height uh, of where this movie goes. Like, the stuff with him and Sandra Bullock doesn't really work. But the scene with him connecting with all these people, I think, really does. Yeah. That goes back to the working class element of it. Yep. These people who are actually people have uh, emotional mutations. They feel, they don't feel, they get mad, they get angry, they come to help him. And uh, that's a great explanation of it it comparing it to Spider-Man because – that I think sometimes is where, you know, I have my sour notes about superhero movies, but that's where superhero movies kind of transcend certain trends of earlier action movies because John McClane, maybe that's a bad example, but nothing Sylvester Stallone ever did, like required the populace to help him. Right. So 
Yeah, I think that's a big difference between 80s and pretty much everything beyond that. Because 80s was like big muscles, big guns, big explosions. Don't need anyone anyone's help. It's one man against the world, right? right. But then as we move forward, and it's probably just indicative of what culture was like. Because the 80s is, you know, the, the time of Reagan, the time of the Cold War, us against the world. Whereas, you know, you move forward and when things get – I think when things get a little bit better internationally, we have these movies yeah. where we all bond together to help one another, especially kind of the, the working class as you brought up a couple times. So it's probably just indicative of the time. But we paid for it too because then we had to deal with upskirts and cigar symbolism when right. Clinton took over. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, you know. Pick, you get pick a your poison. You yeah, exactly. Right. All right. All right. So let's talk about the theme of the movie. Um, so this is this is the kind of movie um, that I started this podcast for because the whole idea was I could pick any movie and I could come up with something for a theme that I can talk about psychologically, even a movie that some people might go, oh, that's a dumb action movie, right? Speed. Right. It's not exactly something that's going to change your life. It's not It's not in the realm of action movies like Die Hard. So, so I picked Entitlement. So what did you think about – how did you feel like that theme uh, connected with this movie? Well, that's why I love your podcast. And – even the two times that I've been on it, you've made me go back and rethink things that I'd already had solid opinions for. But this time with you putting entitlement in my head, I really respected the architecture of this villain. Um, this is the early 90s. Every villain in the early 90s was driven seemingly by every action villain by um resentment from the outside in mm. um in most cases in most standard action movie cases uh the villain is a foreigner to the attacked people um in this case the villain is just a guy who thinks he's owed more within the population this mm. is this is not a foreign villain he's not a foreign terrorist there's nothing foreign about him he's a uh, dennis Hopper's an american as an american can be and just feels that he's owed more that there's more to that, that he wasn't given his piece of the pie that he felt he was promised and he was going to take it. And he had no problems taking it because that seems standard and normal for him. And to think, I try to think of an example where that was where, where another revered action movie had that. And I don't have one from that era. Yeah. I don't, I don't have the American villain who just feels he's owed more because he's the, because he's a white American and he was promised something. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think there's – I think the thing that makes this movie most interesting, the thing that makes Dennis Hopper uh, the most memorable in this movie, and then the one-liners and his portrayal, you know, him chuckling about the whim of a madman, like that stuff all really works and it's enjoyable. But I think what really makes it work is that there is a small part of us as an audience that goes, I get it. Yeah. I understand why he's doing what he's doing. He's not – a megalomaniac he's not he's not out to destroy america he's out right. to get what he feels is owed to him i mean this is a man who gave up a digit for his job and yep. literally all he gets is a gold watch like that's that's what he walks away from like he doesn't get a huge pension he's not taken care of he's you know he's probably at this point like not able to support himself and he figures out okay this is what i know bombs are what i know i'm gonna make this work for me yeah you know what take He's, he does what Reagan's America told you to do. Take the thing you're good at and get the thing you're, you, you deserve. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I think it, it's something that I, I don't think really occurred to me, you know, the first couple times I watched this, but I'm always looking for a theme that's a little bit kind of under the radar. So I decided instead of focusing on, you know, Keanu Reeves, let's, let's focus on the villain of the piece. And I think, you know, he's memorable for a lot of reasons. And I think, right. I think him, I think if you don't care about him, like if you just view him as just pure villainy and someone you're out to stop and someone you hate, I don't think this movie works at all. I think it it's interesting to think of him as a character that's similar um, to Jeff Daniels' character in this movie. Like if you go back 20, 30 years, he is Jeff Daniels. He's doing right. his job. He gets injured in the line of duty and no one really takes care of him. So it's interesting to see kind of how far that can go given this kind of poisonous thinking. Yeah. Um, I think there are parallels that other movies have done this. I don't think they've done it with a villain in an action movie. Though I think you mentioned there was a need to sympathize or a, an impulse to sympathize with him, which I think you see when you watch a movie like Falling Down. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think a movie about entitlement a little bit or probably a lot. Yeah, that's interesting because if you flip this around, he could very easily be an antihero. Like if yeah. you if he's the protagonist of your film, like Michael right. Douglas was in Falling Down. Right. So – so I think I think that and again, I don't know that that would have been my main takeaway if that weren't the angle of your show. So I think it's um, I think it's important to recognize those things. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes that's what makes, uh, you know, average movies good and good movies great is if you can take a look at these ancillary characters and the movie doesn't fall apart. And I think, right. you know, that takes this movie from probably an average movie to a pretty good one. Um, so, and if you don't have that, I don't think it works. All right. Uh, so, uh, hope you guys enjoyed our review of speed. The last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're tying this to, which is, uh, as, which is, as I mentioned, John Wick chapter two. So are you excited to see the sequel to John Wick? Absolutely. I'm super hyped. 100% hyped. Um, trailer spots look good. All the advertising looks good. I'm trying not to read any early reviews, but I've seen some, they're all good. Um, I, like I said, I love when Keanu does this. I want him to do more of this. I feel like we wasted 10 years of him not doing this. Right. Um, I love that he has a franchise that's going to work finally and hopefully will you know, hold its stride for more than one film. Right. Because so, this is his third try in an action franchise. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, you know, I, I love the, the Oscar season. I love I love looking forward to kind of, you know, the quote unquote best movies of the year. But it's a different feeling of excitement uh, when it's a movie like John Wick. Like, I'm not I'm not going into this thinking like, oh, it's going to have the best acting of the year and it's going to win all the awards. Like, I'm just really excited. Like, I'm excited to see him return to this role because John Wick is a movie that took me very much by surprise a couple years ago. Didn't see it in the theater, came very late to it, watched it at home, and it just blew me away. Like, I was just like, oh, my God, everyone was right who was screaming about how great this is. And the thing I'm looking forward to most is it looks like, according to the trailers – they're going to dive a little bit deeper into kind of the mythology behind the world they've created, which which was interesting in the first one. But I felt like I wanted more and it felt like maybe they weren't they hadn't worked all that stuff out yet. So it's going to be interesting to see how that world works. And we get a Matrix reunion. You know, we get Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves right. back together again. So. Right. And I think more like I agree with you on that. Like, so one of the great things about John Wick was the tease of a created universe mm-hmm. like. It, it it pointed at the boundaries of this world that it made up on its own. And I was worried 
because it's a movie with one guy's name in it. And it's a movie that's now synonymous with one guy's performance and one guy's occupation of the role. So I worried, oh, crap, now we're just going to have one of those movies like Jack Reacher where where it's just the guy who's kicking butt. And they're going to probably give up on that. But then you look at the cast and you said Lawrence Fishburne, but it also has Ian McShane and Ruby Rose. Yep. Um, people who you can't waste that kind of talent. Those people, when you give them a foot, they chew up and give you a mile in return. So whatever they are in this movie, they're going to be awesome. You know that there's, you know that Ian McShane and Ruby Rose are going to be awesome. Yep. So, so we get a bigger, broader view of a world that was already enticing to begin with. So I'm super, I'm super hyped about it, and I'm excited to see it. Excellent. All right. Uh, so before you go, one more time, why don't you uh, let people know again about the website uh, and what you offer there? Yeah, it's audienceseverywhere.net, one word. Um, again, glo- uh, global conversation. I think we have we have covered or are covering four continents or five continents, multiple countries all over America. Um, our writers are from everywhere. Sharpest group of writers we've ever had. I say that every time I'm in a podcast, but it just gets better every time that I talk to you. Uh, you had uh, Samantha, one of our contributing editors on your show recently. Um, she's a fantastic writer, so... Uh, we try to keep it positive. We try to keep it a celebration of movies. We try to keep it thoughtful. We try to keep it keep it contemplative and relevant. And um, if you come, engage us. Go to the comments. Go to our Twitter page at We Talk Movies. Engage any writer who you appreciate, any piece that you appreciate. We're all we're all just trying to talk about movies in the right way to fix to fix what's wrong with the uh, movie discourse right now. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. The next time you hear me, hopefully Mike and I will be doing a review on John Wick Chapter 2, which I'm super excited about. But this this podcast doesn't keep going without listeners, because if there's no listeners, I'm not producing anything. So thank you. And if you want to get more involved, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. Go to followingfilms.com and check out some other great movie podcasts like the True Romance Film Podcast and War Machine vs. Warhorse. You can find me on Twitter at PC Case Study. We've also got a Facebook group and a Instagram page and all those kind of things. Just look up either Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study and you should find us there. But if you really want to go the extra mile and be one of my favorite listeners, you should go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. Now, Patreon is a really cool service where you can donate on a per-episode basis for all these shows. It's a really great way to help an independent podcast thrive. So, And you can get some great rewards, as I mentioned. So you could get a shout-out on the show or on Twitter. You could be on the show or you could... You could even tell me what movie to watch if you donate enough money for a a long enough period of time. So lots of cool opportunities there. All right. So until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Do you you stay off off a news feed so that you don't get all high anxious on your days off? Um, You know, I, I wish I had the like the ability to do that and I can't seem to. (laughs) <laughs> just right. like have this compulsion to go check and it does nothing but make me upset. <laughs> yeah, if I'm away for like 30 minutes, I'm like, I'm de- they're going to tweet any minute now that the bombs are on their way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going like, to happen. Like, not that that'll help me, uh, right. but for some reason, I still want to know. I don't mm-hmm. know why. <laughs> it's either going to be the bombs or the impeachment bomb, and I'll take either one of them. Yeah.